Marhaba, and welcome to the Matrix Green Pill, where real people connect. Hello, and welcome back to the Matrix Green Pill podcast. Shireen Zemo here with you as your host. And today I am super excited to introduce our guest to you, Danae Lee. So Danae is an advisor to the CEO at Abu Dhabi Securities Exchange. He's also the CFO at Commercial Bank International and ANZ Bank. He is keen to professionalize the world of outdoor sports from snow to mountain biking. He served as a strategic advisor to Burton Snowboards and brings knowledge of scale, finance, and corporate M&A to a world of lifestyle brands. Danae, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So let's start off with the basics. I'm sure some of our listeners will already know your story, but for those that don't, could you please give a small introduction about yourself? The reality is I'm a tragic snowboarder, skier, mountain biker that's been hiding as an accountant for the better part of the last uh, 15 to 20 years. You know, I keep trying to find my way back into the mountains and back onto a bike and typically just trying to go downhill. Look, I'm Australian, as you can tell by my accent. I've spent a lot of time in the mountains of Canada and Japan in particular, but also across uh, Europe and the US. I moved into Asia back in 2008, 2009. I haven't effectively been back to Australia since. I've now been an expat for the better part of 14 or 15 years. Now living here in the UAE. You know, it's been an exciting journey. And when I was sitting in Australia trying to make the decision about whether or not to move to Singapore all those many years ago, I would never have thought that the journey that I've been on would have come about. But uh, I feel definitely very blessed by that. Look, it's been a very interesting journey as I never set out to work in large corporates, but certainly those opportunities have been presented to me. You know, just pulling on those threads and seeing where those strings lead you has been a very interesting journey, exposed me to incredible people and incredible experiences along the way. A life that I would never have been able to paint or picture for myself back 20 years ago. Certainly sounds like you had a very uh, fulfilling and exciting life, a lot of moving around for sure. My next question is more about how did you find yourself here in the UAE and what were your expectations initially and your experience so far? I was um, headhunted to come here to the UAE. I was working in Asia and through connections I had, I built up a reputation as being somebody who could scale, transform, triage businesses. And there was a bank here that was having a couple of challenges in a few areas and was looking for a strategic CFO who had the ability to come in and not only stabilize a a finance function and build a, a robust finance function, but also to have a key hand and role in developing the strategy and an organization far beyond the finance function. So I was sitting in Bali trip and got phone call from the CEO of a bank here. And within a couple of days, I was on a plane over to Dubai for some interviews with the board and the executive leadership team. And not too long after that, uh, I was here. My expectations of the UAE have largely been exceeded, to be perfectly honest with you. I've worked a lot across emerging markets over the last decade or so. So it wasn't like I was coming completely cold into the region. I did have some understanding of the challenges and differences and also opportunities that would present themselves. And also, I've got a very open mind to different sort of ways of working and working in Environments. And look, frankly, it's probably the best place to be in many respects through COVID. And, you know, my family and I are very grateful to have sort of come out relatively unscathed and to have also had a fairly easy life through that period of time compared to people in other countries. So we're very grateful for that. We're obviously excited to break down what you've mentioned that you do. So let's start off with what do you think are the key trends and growth in the business of outdoor sports? 
There's lots of key trends at the moment, you know, and people will point to things like sustainability and ESG and the social consciousness and that sort of thing. Probably the one that I see being the biggest growth driver and biggest trend is just accessibility. The reality is, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, even most of these sports were only really accessible to a small percentage of, of people because the equipment was very expensive or it was difficult to get a hold of. Also, the locations where you participated in these sports were often either far away or expensive to get to. And what we've started to see, particularly in the last decade, is these sports finding their way closer to major urban centers, also finding that uh, the equipment is becoming far more forgiving for entrance into a lot of these sports, you know, whether it's skiing or snowboarding or cycling, mountain biking, surfing, etc. You know, a lot of effort has been put into being able to introduce people in a fun way. For those of you who have tried to learn skiing or snowboarding even 15 or 20 years ago, we'll tell you that it was a brutal experience. And that first week is, is terrifying in some respects and probably brings back nightmares. But for my kids these days, the way that the technology is built and designed, it's a far more enjoyable experience for kids right through to adults to get access to the sport. And on top of that, I think you find that a lot of the outdoor sports market 20 years ago was very much focused on how big, how extreme, how gnarly could it all be. So, you know, the North Face built its brand off tents on Mount Everest. Whereas you look at the marketing and the way in which the brands are trying to appeal to a broader market base now, it's very much about urban sports and participating in sports in areas that are as close as possible to you. And you see that here in the UAE, the development of you know a lot of these sports and the accessibility, whether it's um, the cycling tracks or what's happening out at Hatta and uh, in Ras al-Khaimah, et cetera. So that's happening globally. It's a global shift around providing these sorts of outdoor opportunities at every level. So I think that's probably one of the biggest shifts that we've seen. Right. And I guess that brings me to my next question. I was just going to ask you how you thought the outdoor sports industry has matured since it first initially broke through to mainstream in the 1990s. I kind of think about it a little bit different. I don't see it as being a breakthrough into the mainstream. It's these sports have largely kept their heritage and largely kept what made them amazing from the very beginning. And it's much more about mainstream just becoming far more aware of the possibilities and doing away with the biases. I mean, we all know the jokes about skiers and snowboarders. And, you know, 30 years ago, there was a lot of ski resorts that didn't even allow snowboards on the mountain. So some of these biases have gone away. And I think that over time, people have come to accept that these sports are a wonderful way to engage the outdoors, a wonderful way to stay fit and healthy. And, you know, I think the maturity comes from, again, shifting a little bit away from trying to be the most extreme and gnarly and sort of edgy sports and making sure that they're safe and accessible to families, to kids, to adults, all the same. So I think that perspective of looking at the entire population and saying, well, how do we get people just absolutely stoked to be in the outdoors and excited to be out. And it doesn't matter if it's going for a walk through a forest or taking a more relaxed bike ride. These are just ways for people to participate, enjoy the outdoors. I agree with you. I guess it is. How would you even describe mainstream? So I like that, that you've said it in that way, that they've always existed and then they, you know, we're all respected in their own way. So the next question would be focused on how were the mergers and the acquisitions like the Kathmandu's takeover of Rip Curl? Uh, shaping outdoor sports? And to what extent will M&A play a role in the future of outdoor sports? Consolidation and M&A um, in outdoor sports has been around for a long time. And this is not a new thing in the Kathmandu takeover of Rip Curl was really about unlocking synergies across the sport. The founders of Rip Curl have been looking for a while. And frankly speaking, they were not just looking for the best, most efficient business partner for Rip Curl. They were also looking for somebody who would respect the culture of the brand, which is the reason why the guys had walked away from approaches from sort of large M&A firms, the investment banks and the PE firms, because they didn't want 
want is sort of a, a strip scenario where somebody comes in and builds a business for four or five years and then needs to get their money out. So they dump it. So from that perspective, I think brands that have built a long heritage, such as Rip Curl, such as Burton Snowboards, et cetera, will always be very conscious of the position that they play in the industry and the sport. Both Rip Curl and Burton, for example, you could probably point to them as being one of the key two or three brands that have almost single-handedly built those sports. They're very conscious of their role in, in the sports and the industry and how important it is to maintain that culture. So I think the Kathmandu takeover of Rip Curl was a very good choice in that regard. There's always been, I guess, M&A activity across the outdoor sports industry. And you know, even to this day, you see uh, very large sporting conglomerates who are buying up some of the smaller brands or providing those efficiencies to smaller brands. It's a positive thing because it creates efficiency in the industry, but also creates opportunity for smaller brands to become larger and find their way into you know, non-traditional markets for them. So you've largely built your brand in Europe, for example, being acquired or certainly getting significant ownership or partnership stake from some other company may give you that opportunity to then you know, move into Asia or move into the, into the US. I think if it's done for the right reasons, then absolutely, it's a very positive thing for the sport. You know, If you go to any of the large trade shows at this point, there's no illusion that M&A is not killing industry at all. I mean, there's thousands of wonderful, amazing brands that are solving really great problems in the outdoors and the sports industry. So yes, we hear and see some of these big names that are being acquired, but the reality is a lot of the outdoor sports industry is still very much driven by smaller brands, smaller businesses, smaller entrepreneurs. And I think that's part of what keeps the outdoor sports industry so alive. It's not dominated by Nike, Under Armour, Anta Sports, etc. It has its big brands, but it's also got such a healthy ecosystem of smaller brands and smaller companies supporting that industry, which means that people who are participating in the industry, very, very passionate, which is one of the best features of the outdoor sports industry. You mentioned all these brands and how they have their different impacts and all of that. So speaking on the same lines, how do you think outdoor sports have been impacted by recent years of climate change? And to what extent are the founders of these different brands working to improve sustainability within our environment? I mean, it's a really great question. I think it comes to, there's a couple of pieces that need to be answered here. And the first is what's been the impact of climate change on the outdoor sports industry. And nobody anticipates in the outdoor sports industry on a consistent basis could tell you that hasn't seen an impact. And that can come from really inconsistent winters and snowfall. Some years it's terrible, some years it's fantastic. And also different regions experience now very different sort of snowfall patterns. But then on top of that, we start to see increased dangers intruding into the outdoor space. And we can't forget that Mother Nature is can be fairly unforgiving. And with large temperature changes, things like the snowpack and what we see in the mountains becomes far more dangerous because you, you have greater variation in temperature throughout the winter season, which typically results in more avalanches and the like. And that's been combined with the fact that you know we now have more and more people out in the outdoors in ski resorts and also looking at opportunities to go outside of ski resorts, side country, back country, slack country, whatever you want to call it, which means more and more people are exposed to the elements, which is at the same time becoming less forgiving. Then also the impact of having so many people in that outdoor environment and what that kind of means. You think about a ski resort that needs to use snow guns to maintain the snowpack and add fake snow. That's a very large drain on water resources from the water catchment areas in those particular regions. So there's definitely a lot of impacts. And look, I'm just talking just 
just primarily here about snowpack and winter sports, but you've seen the same thing happen in terms of um, surfing. You've seen the same sort of thing happening in terms of the way in which people are able to get out and mountain bike and, and so on. It has a large impact. But I think on the flip side of that, the industry is coming together in a really wonderful way. You're very, always very conscious of its outdoor environment, but I think the big shift over the last five years in particular has been the fact that the industry and a lot of the brands really understand that now they have an advocacy role around the environment and around protecting the environment and sustainability. And so we're seeing these brands becoming far more active in the way in which they come together as a, an overall entity and they're trying to put pressure on governments and trying to raise awareness of the impact of climate change. I see that being a really key shift. And I think it's something that the outdoor industry can be incredibly proud of because in many respects, I think it's leading the way as an industry in the way in which it's engaging elected officials, engaging governments, and also engaging its consumer base to raise awareness. I mean, you have brands such as Patagonia who sort of pioneered a lot of the recycling of outdoor gear. And a lot of brands do this now as well. You know, they promote and help you repair jackets and various things like that. So it's not just about being a very consumer driven, oh, you got to rip in your jackets throw it away and buy a new one. They're looking at ways to extend the lifespan of their products and their equipment. And the entire industry is looking at the ways in which it sources materials, where it comes from, the types of materials, the way in which it's prepared and treated. I mean, I think we're all probably pretty aware of the fact that most fabrics can be very environmentally impacting or impactful in the way in which they're produced and colored and dyed and et cetera. So I think the outdoor sports industry is very focused on how it can move to far more sustainable practices, natural fibers, natural colorings, and improve the processes so that it doesn't have as much of a deleterious impact on the environment. It's a big answer to the question, but I think uh, you know the outdoor industry should be very proud of the leadership it's taken and the advocacy it's taken to raise awareness and also face into the challenges of the industry, but also the impacts that its own existence has on the environment. It's definitely a big answer, but it's a very good one as well. I mean, it's great to hear that all these steps are being taken and hopefully other industries can follow with the same thinking, especially like the fact that you mentioned, you know, that they're even teaching you how to fix your jackets rather than just pushing you to go and buy a new one. I guess that's one of the challenges about that the industry has faced. And another challenge that I think everybody has faced was obviously COVID. And I guess this question is more based on that. So how do you think think the outdoor sports founders navigated their supply chain challenges that were presented by COVID and any recent disruptions to the global logistics? I think they're all challenged by it and still challenged by it, to be perfectly honest. Good luck trying to buy a bicycle right now in most parts of the world. I was trying to buy a mountain bike for my son in Canada for the summer holidays, and it's almost impossible. That goes across many different types of uh, sports equipment. Some brands have fared better, who they had a slightly better supply chain or logistics management. They were just lucky and the fact that their stuff got onto a ship before things got too nasty. One thing it has definitely done, and it's not unique to the outdoor sports industry, is raise the question around offshoring and production. You know, three or four years ago, even having to discussion about where you would have your equipment manufactured if you were going to do it just down the road, you know, whether it's down the road in the US or around the corner in Europe, you would have been thought of being a little bit crazy because you're lifting your cost of production. And, you know, for most founders and most manufacturers were looking at options in Bangladesh and Vietnam and China, et cetera, and depending on where the equipment was. But I think what it's really challenged a lot of founders to think about is where they want things produced, you know, how their supply chain is impacted by that so that they're able to ensure that they have a consistent level of delivery through to their customers and they don't have 
in long periods of time where you don't have stock in the shelves. And for a lot of these sports, they're fairly seasonal. So if you miss the season, it can be a long time until you start to get cash flow happening again. So if you're a ski brand and you don't have your stuff in the stores in October through December, that's basically it for the year. And that could be make or break for that business if you don't have that cash flow coming in. So I think people are being far more deliberate about the way in which they distribute the risk around supply chain. You know, I think ultimately the companies have also previously where they were very focused on having lots of products and a broad range of SKUs, they're now at a point where they're thinking, well, how do we make sure that we maximize what we are producing? You know, what's most profitable to us, but also the things that we're able to keep in stock. And there's really no point in having just extra things for just branding sake, really need to be quite deliberate about what we're stocking. So I think it's asked a lot of questions of a lot of companies. We're still seeing the impacts of that. The food industry, it's um, all the way through the various things that we buy as consumers. Good luck trying to buy an electric car right now because it's almost impossible as well. So it's not a unique challenge to the outdoor sports industry. No, absolutely. And I agree with that. It was interesting to know how it's impacted that particular industry. So the next question is more about the overall industry and how you see progressing in the next 10 years. Where do you see it going just based on your own experience? Some of the topics we've already talked about is really the future of the sport. And I think I opened up the conversation talking about accessibility. And I think that's still going to be the main focus of the outdoor sports industry over the next 10 years. And in any way, diminishing things like sustainability and the environmental impact and the different things we're seeing in textile trends, etc. These are all critical to the sustainability of the sports and critical to the growth of these sports. But ultimately, the accessibility of the outdoors to a broader population is absolutely key. All of these other things play into that for sure. But we're seeing lots of you know really unique things being by different sports that trying to bring sports to where the people are, as opposed to saying, well, you've got to drive four hours to the mountains to be able to go mountain biking. You know, even here in, in the UAE, we have um, a Mushrif Park and we have the Al Qudra cycling track and all of these things fairly close to the urban environment, which gives people an opportunity to mountain bike, to road bike. The government here is, is building more and more opportunities to do that. And that's not unique the UAE, most urban and regional centers around the world are trying to bring the sports closer and give accessibility to it. And you know, people are coming up with some really unique solutions. So there's a company in Switzerland called Equip Sports. And you know, it founded by uh, Henry Niedecker, who is um, the owner of one of the snowboard brands. His idea is around providing equipment and making equipment accessible to people. And so he's developed a product, which is um, you know, Xboxes that sit at uh, recreation areas. So for example, on Lake Geneva, these boxes that you can use them mobile app and book and rent a stand-up paddleboard or at a basketball court being able to book and rent a basketball is essentially like a vending machine i'm not selling it all that well but um essentially like a vending machine with a mobile phone app where you can book a basketball the door will unlock you can take the basketball out play put it back, it locks, and then it knows that you've returned the, the product. So there's lots of these sorts of little ideas which are allowing people to be to access the outdoors and participating in those sports. They're expensive and power consuming, but things like wave parks that are becoming more ubiquitous around the world that are creating incredible waves. The waves that they can produce is extraordinary. And as a surfer, you can get in there and, and have an amazing time. And you're seeing more and more of these being built. There's a long list of these being built around the world. And, and I think they'll be a great draw card and attraction to many countries. So these are the sorts of things that outdoor sports are doing is trying to make it more accessible and trying to bring the sports to where people are. And then also making sure that sports are safe. You know, if I see young kids and if I see the equipment that's available to them to go snowboarding, it's far, far safer than it was 20 years ago. And so they don't injure themselves and hurt themselves. They stay warm on the mountain, all of these sorts of things. So I think 
accessibility is going to be the key thing that drives the outdoor sports over the next uh, 10 to 20 years. But that sits on top of all of these other key trends in the industry around sustainability, around the environment, etc. Right. I know that's going to be very interesting to see how that progresses. And obviously, we can all hope that everybody starts taking sustainability a lot more seriously and the impact that climate change is having. And hopefully that doesn't continue to get worse so that we are still able to enjoy the outdoors without having to only go to man-built structures to actually enjoy the sports and things like that. That's the hope there. Well, thank you so much for answering all our questions today. And it was very interesting to hear your perspective and your experience with the outdoor sports. Now we've actually come to the segment of our show where I will ask you a few rapid fire questions. So it's like a little game show. Just answer the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready to play? Absolutely. Let's do it. So in your opinion, what is the most underrated outdoor sport? Snowboarding. What's your favorite pastime or hobby? Snowboarding. What is the one thing that you do for yourself every single day, no matter how busy you get? Tell my kids that I love them. That's so sweet. So thank you so much for playing along, Danae. Just before we wrap up, I would like to ask you about your green pill moment. What was that moment for you, the action or event? That was the turning point for you or your career. To be honest, I've got two. And I would say that turning point for me was getting on a plane at, at 18 and flying to Canada and becoming a snowboard instructor and spending a couple of years in the mountains. I mean, that's entirely shaped the next 25 years of my life in terms of what I find passion in and what I seek out. And then I think something that's a little bit more attributable to your broader audience is you know, when I was uh, 29, I had opportunity to potentially move to Asia. I was working in Australia at the time. And my green pill moment was sitting actually in the surf, trying to make a decision about whether or not to move from Melbourne to Singapore. And I was agonizing over it, to be honest. And in the end, I sort of said, screw it, just do it. And worst case scenario is you're back here in Melbourne in two years time. And it was the greatest thing that I decided to do in, in many respects, because I've spent 15 years overseas now, lived in Singapore and Hong Kong, and, and now here in the UAE. And, you know, I've built a family along the way, you know, I've traveled all over the world and done some incredible things that I would never have had the opportunity to do. And more importantly, I've met the most amazing people along the way who really opened my eyes and broadened my perspective on the world. So from that perspective, taking that decision just to go boots and all jump in and and do it when I was 29 and moved to Asia was probably my key green pill moment. Wow. And it really does sound like you've had a very exciting life. And I can relate to the fact that being here in the UAE, for example, for most of my life, it's been quite an experience. And I've also had the pleasure of being in Melbourne and traveling to different parts of the world. And I think that nothing beats going to different places and experiencing different cultures, meeting all the different peoples with their perspectives and thinking. And it really does shape who you are. And if you aren't exposed to that or don't have that experience, it's, it does really change things, I feel. I agree. My other question for you would be, what green pill advice would you give to your younger self? The advice I give to my younger self, I don't want anybody to think that I've gotten this right by any measure over the last 15 or 20 years, but that advice would be be patient and be kind. When you're in, in your 20s and early 30s and trying to build a career and trying to progress in life, sometimes you're a little too aggressive and you're not patient enough and you don't allow things to develop in the way that they should. And you also miss some things along the way because you know, you're too focused on trying to move forward quickly. So I think absolutely try your best to be patient, even though you're also trying to achieve at the same time. And then secondly, be kind because life is both long and short. And even in my experience, 
you know, there's been times when you are not as kind or I haven't been as kind to people along the way, only to find out at a later time they've been facing challenges in their own lives that, you know, you just had no idea that what was going on. You know, throughout life, you see these people over and over again. I mean, I see people now here in the UAE working professionally who I met in Hong Kong in 2010, 2011, et cetera. So be patient and be kind would be my advice. Well, I love that. I think those are very important things for everyone to keep in mind always. And like you said, you never know when you're going to come across the same people that you might have been unkind to um, down the line. And it always hurts to find out that you might have been unkind to someone that was going through something difficult that you weren't aware of. So that's very great advice. And thank you so much for sharing that. Just overall sharing your really interesting and inspiring story. I think I've learned a little bit more about outdoor sports today and hope that the audience did as well. So thank you for that. Just before we say goodbye, if you don't mind sharing any of your social media handles of where people could follow you on your journey. Yeah, thanks. Look, it's been great to have a discussion today and I've really enjoyed it. And people can find me at uh, fluidstate.com, also on email, danae at fluidstate.com. And then from there, you'll find all the other social media channels and handles, Instagram, etc. If anybody's keen to have a chat or go bike riding here in the UAE, uh, be, by all means, reach out. We'll head out and have a ride. That sounds great. And what would you say are your favorite uh, bike riding spots here in the UAE? I'm very practical these days when I can actually get time away from the kids. I live in Jumeirah, so I often go to the Murder Cycling Track. Otherwise, if I can get the time, I'll go out to Al Qudra and go for a longer ride when I can. But um, definitely heading up into the Hatta Mountains with my son and going mountain biking is my favorite thing to do. But it's a bigger day of planning and organizing. It's not something you can do impulsively, unfortunately. Of course, yeah. And then it also depends a lot on the weather. Well, Danae, thank you so much again. It was a real pleasure to chat with you today and um, looking forward to seeing what you're up to in the next couple of years. Thanks so much. It's been fantastic to be here and have a great day. If you enjoy our conversations, please like and subscribe. See you next Wednesday.